brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who manipulate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence is in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee as to, do, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I have. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from that God depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Alex. I am new to Phoenix. My wife and I, Maria, who went to the back because our granddaughter is fascinated with me right now. Strange story. My wife and I were in St. Louis last week at Covenant Seminary going through our assessment to plan a church in the Maryville, Tullison, Avondale area. When I get home, my granddaughter acted like I was abandoning her. She, our daughter moved it back home with us, and she's there. And so she has become like, everywhere I go, she's, where's Papa? Where's Papa? Where's Papa? So as you heard her, as I got up to get ready to preach, she did not like it and uh, started making herself known. <laughs> she's also very shy. So I bring greetings from King of Kings Church. Uh, this session and Pastor Harp wanted to say hello to all of you. Um, I am a member there, under care of the session there, recently licensed in the PCA as I transfer my ordination, or I'm transferring my ordination from Chicago here to plant a church in the Maryville community. Uh, just a little bit about myself, I've been pastoring for about 15 years, all inner city type ministry, um, church in hard places we like to call it sometimes, and it's been a joy doing that. We've seen great things um, through the Lord, working in the lives of people. And there was a point as I was revitalizing a church where it was thriving, and I looked at the church and felt like I was not needed anymore. And began to pray, and I went to my wife, and I said, I think we should plant a church. And she said, no, you're crazy. <laughs> and so through a lot of prayer, counsel, guidance from, from men that I trust dearly with my life, with my soul, um, here we are. And we're at King of Kings, growing, 
growing within the PCA, and hopefully by the end of the year, I'll finish my ordination, and by next year, we'll begin the process of planting another PCA church around that Maryville community. So please pray for us as we're in that process. Um, it's hard, as, as you guys know. It's a difficult process. It takes a lot of effort, and it takes a lot out of you. Um, but we're so encouraged by the saints in Arizona, by the Presbytery, and how everyone has come around us to just love on my family, uh, build us up, and push us, and push us to do the work that God, Christ has called us to do. So just wanted to share a little bit about myself. We'll be in the back afterwards. If you want to ask questions or talk to us about the vision or anything like that, gladly share that with you. So let's get right to Philippians. Uh, this is an exciting piece of text. I was so glad that, the, uh, that Pastor Ewing would uh, allow me to stay with you guys in series. I love Philippians. Preached through it before. And uh, as I began studying for this, I began to see some interesting uh, uh, aspects of it in my own life. So there's this infamous story in my family when I was in grade school, around the third grade. My aunt and uncle from Puerto Rico came to visit, and they brought me this pencil set. It was the coolest pencil set in the whole world. I loved it. I, it was my treasure. Now, there was this girl in my class, and her and I had some issues, third graders who didn't like each other. And so often, we would pick on each other. I don't know what happened this morning at class, but she said something to me, and I know it was all her fault because I remember that. And so she said something. I grabbed her basic number two yellow pencil and broke it. She got right up, walked up to the teacher, and told on me. So as the teacher walked to, the, to, the, to my desk towards the middle of the classroom, I, I knew my punishment was coming. I was ready to get up and walk to my corner. Done this before a few times. Well, she grabbed my pencil set and gave it to the little girl. And she snapped them. My whole treasure, everything I loved in this world was right there, broken. I didn't think it was fair. I didn't think it was a number two pencil for my treasure was the same value. So I got angry. I got angry at, at my teacher. I got angry at the little girl. The funny thing is that my mom worked in the school too. So I didn't get angry for longer. So interesting, when we talk about treasures... And what we consider to be the highest value, something that we hold on to, even our education, our degrees, our homes, our finances, our children, our grandchildren. The question is, what do you treasure? Ask yourself, what is the thing that you value the most in your life? What is the thing that means the most to you? The passage today is asking that very question. What is the most valuable thing do you have? But in this passage, Paul's going to give us his answer. It was not his power, his position, or his performance. But instead, it was being found in Christ. At the heart of this passage is verse 8, in which Paul reminds all of us what is truly to be treasured. And he says, I, indeed, I, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's hope, his treasure, 
what he values the most in the world was being found in Christ. And despite all that Paul faced in his life, he described the results of being found in Christ in three ways. Number one, he says to rejoice in Christ. Two, he says be confident in Christ. And three, he says know the fullness of Christ. This was Paul's treasure. Ultimately, to be found in Christ is not about what you can do or accomplish, but it's resting in what Christ has done and accomplished for you. If you can remember one thing, it's not about what you can do, but what about Christ has done for you, what he's accomplished for you on that cross. So our first point today is rejoice in Christ. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul called the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. The phrase is better understood as saying, rejoice because you are the Lord's. He's saying rejoice because you belong to Jesus. Or we can say it, rejoice because of what Jesus has done for you. It's a reminder to the church that something has been done for them. It's a reminder to them that Christ did a work for them. So let's start off with all we do with rejoicing. So at this point of the letter, he is reminding them, keep your focus on Christ. Keep your focus on what he's done for you. Don't forget that Christ died for your sins. The church was dealing with some false teachers. And before he addresses these false teachers and calls them out, he's reminding them, rejoice. It's interesting that this is a return to the language of Psalms. It's a worship. It's a reminder to continue worshiping despite all that you may face and never forgetting who you belong to and who you are and what your identity is in Christ. Paul goes on and he begins to call out these false teachers. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who are these dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh? That Paul's addressing. Many of the scholars believe these were actually Jews who became Christians that were still holding on to the legalism, still holding on to the Mosaic law, still holding on to the things of the past and not seeing Christ for who he truly is. So Paul wanted to make sure they understood that these false teachers, that he's calling them out by names, and these are rough names. He's not sugarcoating stuff at this point. Paul is going to make a point to say, this is nonsense. Let go of all this nonsense and hold on to Christ, our true treasure. Dogs were considered by Jews, uh, as one commentator describes, the most despised, insolent, and miserable of creatures and is unclean. Broke my heart when I heard that because I'm a dog lover. Broke my heart when I read that from this commentator. Paul called them out in such a derogatory way, using language that they clearly understood 
Letting them know that their false teachings were anti what God Christ was doing in the church. He also calls them evildoers. So besides the false teachings, he's calling it evil. He's saying what you're bringing to the church is evil. It's against God. He describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. You know, both these evildoers and these dogs are the same people, the false teacher. And Paul's calling out their works-driven salvation, their idea that you can save yourself, the idea that if you did all the right things, if you follow the law to perfection, you're going to be okay. And Paul's saying, nope, the law cannot do that. The law cannot save you. Your works are like filthy rags unto the Lord. He then goes on into the most interesting part of calling them names. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Interestingly, Paul doesn't use the word circumcision, but he uses a pun. Instead, he uses the term cutting. These are people that were cutting the flesh. So their circumcision was nothing more than just cutting the flesh, doing something that the pagan people would do. So he's comparing these ultra-religious believers or people, works-driven people, these false teachers, and he's comparing them to pagans now. This pun, I mean, this is a harsh statement. He's basically calling their, their belief system nothing more than equal to the pagan beliefs of the world at that time. Talk about offensive language. Talk about the possibility of getting himself killed for what he's saying. But he's making a point of saying something to them. Paul has addressed the false teachers before in other epistles. These were people that were following him around throughout the region and bringing problems to the church because they always wanted to bring works back into the salvation process. It never was about Christ for them. It was about what man can do. It was about a me-centeredness that if I can do more and if I can be better and if I can pray harder than you, then I'm better than you. And Paul was addressing this throughout his letter. And there's a pattern that we see throughout these letters. And in Philippians, he hits them hard and he hits them in the gut, if you will. And he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. The true circumcision is not a circumcision of the flesh, but it's a circumcision of the heart. It's a circumcision that Christ does in us. It is a work of the Holy Spirit cutting away who we once were and making us new in Christ. This is why we are to be found in Christ. See, to me, circumcised means that God has separated us according to the work of Jesus. It is only in Him that we can be justified, sanctified, and glorified. It is only in Him that it makes sense. And it's only in Him that we can rejoice because of what Christ has done. To say we are circumcised is to say that we are God's covenant people. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the church. And today we can see that through the letters and say we are God's covenant people. 
We are the people of his promise. And this is why we we take the symbol of baptism as God's covenant promise for us and our children. This is why we believe in what Christ has done and we hold on to it and we rejoice in it. In Romans chapter 2 and in verse 28, we talk about that inward transformation, what Jesus accomplished at the cross. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul writes to the Roman, reminding them what circumcision is, and now he's telling the Philippians what circumcision is, and he's letting them know, you are the circumcision. We're the ones that are separated by God. He's done a work in our hearts. Don't be fooled by this nonsense, by these dogs, these evildoers, by those who cut the flesh for no reason. Because those are works of men. Paul's point is that to live out the good news is not about what you do, or as Paul states, it's confidence in the flesh, but rather in the glory of Christ, our Savior, our treasure, which is the reason we worship. It's the reason we rejoice. It's the hope that fills us. Our second point is to be confident in Christ. Now, it's interesting because Paul goes on to share all of his accolades. So from verse 4 to 6, he's giving us his testimony, actually. And sometimes we got to look at our testimonies and, and think about how we present them to people. As someone who goes out to the community and is trying to share the gospel with people, I'm, I'm cautious not to talk about what I am, but rather to talk about what Christ has done in me and who I was. It's okay to point to your past and not to glorify that past, but to talk about that past in a way that says, look who I was and God stripped me away of all that nonsense and now he's made me new in him. And I couldn't do it no matter how hard I tried. So Paul is doing the same thing to the church. He's going to begin to list all of his accolades and he lists seven things. Four of these things are things that are, he's born into. He says, he says, I am of the lineage of, of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day. Then he says, he is uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he's talking about things that he was born into. This is the life God gave him already. But then he talks about the things he accomplished. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He had to earn that. He had to go to school for that. He talks about the idea of, of being zealous in the Jewish faith as a persecutor of the Christian church. And then he talks about his self-righteousness. He calls it righteousness, but what he really means is his self-righteousness. He's basically telling the church, I followed the law to perfection. He believed in his own mind that at one time in his life, he was actually following the law. That he was, he was doing everything God required of him. To find out one day, as he was traveling that Damascus road, that he wasn't doing what God intended for him, but that he was living his own life, his own desires, persecuting the church. And Christ meets him on that road. 
See, Paul counted all of those things that he calls his confidence in the flesh as lost. He says those things are lost. Those things are lost because there are surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's amazing to see this testimony because sometimes our testimonies can fall on the same pattern. We hold on to our self-righteousness, to our accomplishments, to what we've achieved, to, to the accomplishments of our children. My wife and I, we love to brag about our kids too. We have, a, we have four kids, three college graduates, one military boy. Our youngest graduated from Michigan, so we, we tell her that she's better than the other kids that went to like the other Big Ten schools. So they, they, they pick on us for saying, oh, you, you favor the baby. So we, we brag about these accomplishments, and they all did great. All of our kids did great in school, and they achieved wonderful things. But all of that means nothing if they're not found in Christ. And Paul is making the point of all of that he's accomplished in his life means nothing if you're not found in Christ. If our confidence is in what we've accomplished and not in what Jesus has accomplished, then there's something missing in our hearts and in our lives. We're holding on to the confidence of the flesh and not into the surpassing worth of Jesus. When you look at verse 7, but whatever I gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's taking all those former privileges, his power, his position, his performance as a Pharisee, and telling the churches that they mean nothing. They mean nothing in comparison to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. He's describing that moment to them. He doesn't have to tell them in details what happened on that Damascus road, but he's telling them that moment that happened without saying any words. He's saying, Christ transformed me in an instant. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know who Christ is in your life, I want you to know that in an instant, he can't transform you. He takes the penalty of your sin and he gives you his righteousness. He gives you hope and takes away your despair. He makes you a son of God, a friend, a brother and a sister. He gives you a family that's called to encourage you and build you up. This is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul's saying, stop trusting in the false treasures of this world and trust in the true treasure who paid it all for you and who gave us the greatest treasure, eternal life with him. That's the exciting part. The interesting thing is, in my third point, Paul's going to go into telling you what is the fullness of Christ. And he repeats himself regarding all that he's lost but this time, he does it with an emphatic indeed. It's so, much, it's so important to, to know exactly who Christ is, to know what he's done, that he repeats everything he lost, 
And now he's going to go into details about this loss so that we know what's important in our lives. If the idea of what loss did not get the point across the first time, Paul now repeats it with his direct lineage to the Israelite, his identity as a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and, his, and he rolls it all together with all of his accomplishments. And he compares it to Christ. Here are his accomplishments, and here's Christ. And he looks at it, and he says, this is rubbish. Interestingly, that that word is a word that we can't repeat in church, or anywhere else for that matter. It's actually the word poop. And there's a better word for it. More derogatory word for it. That's how much Paul looked at his accomplishments. The confidence in his flesh. Everything he was and everything he did. And then looked at Christ and he said, this is garbage. Rubbish. It's no good for me. Can you imagine grabbing a hold of all that you've accomplished? Our 401ks. Our degrees. What we've done with our children, raising them to be perfect little citizens. And then saying to ourselves, Jesus, everything I've done, and recognizing, it's all rubbish. Now, I'm not saying that we don't raise our children well. I'm not saying we don't pursue education and degrees. I'm applying for my doctorate now. I'm not saying we don't do these things. But when we compare them to being found in Christ... They mean nothing. They mean nothing. And we should look at what Christ has given us. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Wrap your minds around all you've done. And then think about that moment when your eyes were open to Christ. Think about that moment when you confessed Jesus as Lord. Hold on to those moments throughout life. Hold on to that moment when Christ saved you. And when you became aware of that salvation for you. Because it will fuel your life through the hard times. It will fuel your life to the traumas that we're promised to live in this world. They happen. We know they happen. But when you hold on to Christ and you're found in Christ and that is your only hope, you are going to see and look at these things and say, I know this is a tough time in my life, but I got Jesus. And there's a promise that comes with that. When we go to, when we talk about being found in Christ and all of this stuff in our family lineage, Paul's dealing with something that he also wrote in Galatians. And he says in verse 23, chapter 3 of Galatians, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all the sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And then he goes on to tell us that we're no longer part of anything that we once were. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. 
you are one in Christ Jesus. To be found in Christ means that we give away everything, including our identity. It doesn't mean I stop being a Puerto Rican man. But it means I put that to a side to hold on to Christ and to my brothers and sisters, the church, to live together and encourage one another in Christ. To hold each other accountable in our walks. To speak into each other's life when times are tough and remind each other of the surpassing worth of Christ. In verse 9, Paul says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying that there's a righteousness that we receive that is in our own. The shorter catechism, question three, calls it justification. And it says, what is justification? Justification is an act of God. God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I love how one commentator describes it. He says, what a glorious exchange. Christ received our punishment, though he never sinned, and we received his righteousness, though we didn't deserve it. Consequently, we are found in Christ. And this is the free gift that Paul is talking about to the church. This is why he calls them to rejoice. This is why he calls them to be confident. And this is the fullness of knowing that you are in Christ that we receive a free gift that we get to live in, a gift that we didn't deserve, a great treasure that God gives every one of us who have responded to Jesus in faith. And now knowing the fullness of Christ, meaning that Christ has also sanctified us and is sanctifying us, and that one day we will be glorified in him. It's an act of God's free grace. It means to know Christ personally, relationally. It isn't this idea that we get to speak of Jesus in terms as in though he's not intimate to us, but we speak in Jesus in terms that make a difference in our lives. When others talk about Christ and you hear them like, oh, this Jesus, the guy upstairs, or or these weird terms, and I, I look at them, do you know Christ and what he's done for you? This is what Paul is telling the church, and this is what he's reminding them of. Don't listen to these false teachers. Do you know Christ? Do you rejoice in him? Are you confident in him? Have you seen the fullness of his work in your life? What's amazing about this justification that we get to have is that it doesn't end there. There's sanctification. I like how John Murray describes it because there's two parts of sanctification and there's always this weird discussion around it as if we can sanctify ourselves. No, we cannot. Christ did the work. But then he allows us to participate in it. He gives us a role in that work. He's done all the work. He's accomplished all of it. And now we get to participate by putting sin to death in our flesh by mortifying sin in our daily lives, by confessing to the Lord of our brokenness and our need for Him. 
We get to share in the sufferings of Christ. We get to know what he's accomplished for us. And to share in these sufferings is to participate in what the, and the benefits that they accomplished for us. See, Christ broke the power of sin for you and me. And he empowers us daily and reminds us daily that he did that. Our knowing the fullness of Christ through justification and sanctification brings us right back to verse 8. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. To know Jesus means that one day, because of his righteousness given to us, we will be in his presence. We will be in his presence. We will stand before him, rejoicing, worshiping, in awe of what he's done for us. And we will be in our glorified bodies. I used to joke a lot when at our church in Chicago about getting my glorified body that I'll be doing a bunch of marathons and triathlons and Ironmans because I'm going to be new because I tore my knees up doing all that stuff before. And I'd be rejoicing as I'm running to the finish line because Christ is right there with me. And I'll be worshiping because Christ has done a work in me. As Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was in prison. I want you to wrap your mind around the joy that he has to have in Christ, to say, I'm found in Christ, yet he's in prison. Imagine the suffering, the pain, the despair, and the moments that maybe he had doubts himself. And you can see of it in some of his letters where he starts to get a little tense, and yet he comes right back to it, but I'm found in Christ. And then he begins to rejoice all over again. In the beginning of the letter, Paul writes, for, to, for me to live in is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knew that to be found in Christ meant that his past, his present, and his future are all secured in Christ. Brothers and sisters, yours is as well. When you place your faith on Jesus, your past, present, and future are secured in him. He has you. He holds you. He keeps you. And the promise that Christ gives us is that he will never lose any one of us. Not one of us shall be lost when we're in Christ. Christ, the creator and the redeemer of his elect people. Paul wanted the Philippians to understand what he knew, that to know Christ is to be justified, sanctified, and glorified in him. To know Christ is to share in his sufferings. But to know Christ means that we rejoice despite the sufferings that we may endure. And for this reason, we're called to live a life of rejoicing, a life of confidence, a life knowing the fullness of what Christ has done for all of us. He tells the church that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's hope in Christ 
caused him to look forward into the future. He knew his time was limited. He knew that being a prisoner meant that one day he would die for what he believed. We have it so much easier because we don't get persecuted for our faith in the same way. We get ridiculed for our faith. We get made fun of for our faith, but we're not getting persecuted for our faith. Maybe one day we will. And this is when we hold on to Christ and we're reminded of what he's done for us. This is one day that we look forward to that future coming of Christ. That future resurrection, that that glorification that Christ has promised us. The hope of tomorrow in him. And this is what Paul wanted the church to know. The Philippians and the church today. That in Christ, there is hope for eternity. A hope that never goes away. A hope that's never lost. And a hope that calls us to participate in the good works he's given us. Proclaiming the gospel. Sharing the good news with our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our classmates. Inviting them to church, inviting them to your home for a meal. And then sharing your testimony of what Christ has done for you. The hope of Jesus to be found in Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we look at this letter of Philippians, think about how we are found in Christ. Think about what you treasure and how you're meant to live that out. The good news is that Christ empowers you. So hold on to Jesus. The good news is that you, the work that you're doing is because the Holy Spirit is moving in you. Continue holding on to Jesus. And be reminded of what he's done for you. And when you look at your accomplishments, and you look at Christ, the surpassing worth of Christ, you will know the difference. Wonderful. Amazing. Glorious. A surpassing worth that I hold on to. So that our identity is found in who Christ is and nothing else. Let's bow our heads and pray.